Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast about mental resilience, learning from hardship, all to build a winner's mindset. Hosted by myself, Jack Jarvis, and if you could like, follow, or subscribe to the podcast, I'd really, really appreciate it. Today, I'm joined by Paul Minter. Now, Paul joined the army in 2003 and served for 18 years in the household cavalry, completing five operational tours, four of Afghanistan and one of Iraq. In November 2020, he decided to leave the forces and set up a charity to help soldiers and veterans with mental health struggles after a number of his friends took their own lives. He launched the charity, Head Up, by running around the whole of the UK, including Northern Ireland, the Isle of Wight and the Isle of Man, averaging 30 miles a day, over 5,000 miles in total, and it took him 218 days. Paul joins me now. Hi, how are you, mate? You good? Uh, Jack, I'm really good, mate. Really good to be on your podcast and, and see you again. Yeah, no, it's good. Me and Paul met at the um, at the Pride of Britain Awards. We were both nominated for fundraiser of the year. Um, and we had a few drinks. We really got to know each other quite well. So I thought I need to get him on the pod. We start every podcast the same, mate. How do you define winning in your life? I think winning is very much an individual perspective. Um, we can win at everything. We can win at Winning a day by getting out of bed, by achieving small goals, big goals. We can win um, the week. We can win a month. Uh, we can win a year, uh, depending on what you do. It's always good to reflect back on what you've done and look at all the positives and everything you gained. Um, I think especially as, as British people, we're not very good at reflecting on the positives and quite often we reflect on the negatives. So uh, winning can be big and small. Um, and it's again, it's all a perspective to an individual. Yeah, no, I really like that. Those small wins. I always talk about this on a pod, right, mate? So let's go back all those years. Um, you know, tell us about your childhood and how did that lead you to joining the army? Yeah, I was from London, um, brought up in East London, um, next to big up East London, big up East London, <laughs> um, big West Ham area. So yeah. that was sort of how I brought up around West Ham and football and boxing was a big thing for me as well as a bit of rugby. Um, I enjoyed my childhood. It was very much going out in the streets, get out of the house. I don't want to see you until it goes dark kind of thing. So a lot of independence as a, as a young child. Um, I think about the age of eight, I watched a Royal Marines Commando program on TV and it, I kind of just got hooked from then. I didn't know anyone in the military. Um, was that the one... Um uh, that he follows him all through training and then on to like Herrick 5, was it? No, that was, um, it, was a, it was way before that. We're talking oh, okay. about in the 90s. So. Oh, okay, yeah, but yeah. A very similar sort of one yeah. where you, you, you watch him through training and um, watching him do their regains and falling off and all the way up until they do the 30-mile yomp at the yeah. end. And uh, I was just hooked on it and I thought, wow, how amazing is this? This is what I want to be part of, this group, this group of people that are pushing themselves and uh, it stuck with me all the way through my childhood and I, I never changed my mind even though I didn't know anyone in the armed forces and never had. And uh, once I turned 16, I went to Newcastle where my mum moved to with her partner and I went to, she, I asked to join the army and she was like, look, you're still very young. Why don't you try and give college a go? So I went up to Newcastle, joined a college. Within there for about two months, I was like, look, I don't want to do this no more. What subjects were you doing? I, it was five-star engineering. Oh, okay. So it was just like welding and yeah. electrics. And it was fun, but I, all I was thinking about is joining the army. Tapping the or gaffer. joining the Royal Marines. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And uh, so I actually went to a career office up in Newcastle. And uh, I, I said to the Royal Marines, oh, can I come and uh, speak to you about joining the Royal Marines? And there was a, a sergeant, Royal Marine sergeant, and he just said to me, where are you from? And I said, London. And he went, well, fuck off back to London then. 
Um, and I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. And then, <laughs> then he shut the door on me, and I went home and I told my mum, I've got to go back to London. Um, to and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, so I've been told to fuck off back to London, so that's what I'm doing. So I got on the train the next day, went back to London where my dad lived, and went to the careers office, and the, the Royal Navy weren't there at the time, so the army dragged me in and said, you're too young to join the Royal Marines, join the army, and that's how I kind of ended up in the army. But yeah. um, somehow I joined the Household Cavalry, I'm not sure. I think I mixed. I went through about three or four different regiments before I ended up in the, in, in the Household Cavalry through training. Um, but never looked back, fantastic regiment, really enjoyed um, serving with the people I did. Yeah, mate, it's funny to hear how other people join the army. You know, my old man was in, so all my like godfathers, people you call uncles were in, you know. So I knew as soon as I went, like I remember going to the careers office as like 15-year-old lad, I was like, I'm joining the engineers, I want to go 5-9 commander. And they were like, all right, mate, like, yeah, you can, obviously, they they sell you whatever you want, mate, the careers office, don't they? Yeah. Um, they were like, yeah, yeah but let's just uh, let's just get you in the army first. Um, so you joined the household cav. Tell us about sort of your training. And um, so you joined in 2003. And then how long was it? How long was that training cycle until you were in Afghanistan for the first time? Yeah, I done the basic. Uh, I was in Winchester. So I done the basic 12, 12 weeks training. And if I can be completely honest, I thought it was really easy. I was just like, what's this? I, I I'd built up for years and years of pure aggressive punishment. And I didn't think it was nowhere near as bad as I was hoping, if you like. And yeah. um, I thought, well, this is going to be quite easy then. Um, if this is what the training's like. And you were 16 as well? 16 yeah, years yeah. old, yeah. Um, done phase two. Uh, done my armoured vehicle uh, reconnaissance training. Uh, joined the regiment and that's it. I was, I, was, I was stuck into the regiment and I think um, Iraq was going on at the time but we had different squadrons out there so I wasn't able to do that which I was a bit gutted about. Um, I joined the Nordic ski team which I think a lot of fit people in the, yeah, in I've, the I've army done that. do. Yeah, I've done that, mate. <laughs> a lot of fun. Pure grizz but a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and we was doing, we were on the final competitions around Europe and we got a phone call from, we were the D squadron, which was 60 in air assault. And we got a phone call for two, two of us that was out there saying, um, you need to get back now. You're going to Afghanistan in six weeks time. Um, we, we were part of the first draft to go out um, with uh, free para uh, brigade. So we went back. I was super excited. Uh, this is what I wanted to do. I joined the army to come and do do this sort of thing. How old were you then? Eighteen. I was just turning nineteen. Yeah. Oh. So a couple. I'd been in the regiment for a couple of years by this point. Um, super excited and came back. Done what five six weeks of PDT uh, pre-deployment training, and then we was on the plane to Afghanistan. When was this? What time? This was time about was it April May two thousand six. Just the start of fighting season then, yeah. Just the very start. When we landed, we didn't have a runway. We landed in the desert, you know. And um, I remember there was an MP that that came to see us before we got on the planes, and he said, "Guys, this is a hearts and missions uh, thing that you're doing out there. There won't be any any rounds fired. So just go out there, but don't, you know, don't go aggressive." And as our plane was landing in the desert, we were getting shot at by AK forty seven. So we were like, "What?" Bloody liar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, like to hear you say that now, you were literally where would you have been? France, Nordic skiing probably. It, yeah, I think I was in France or Germany actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we did it we it was Sweden before Christmas and then you went to the, that was like their core champs. Yeah. And then the armies were in France, um, in the new year. Compared to your later tours, right, and trying to explain to people that maybe don't have that military background, like no PDT, anything like that, you were literally just into the fire how was that and what was that like you know as, as a 19 year old lad I, as you'll know and lots of people listening um 
there are multiple different personalities in the armed forces, in the army. You get a lot of guys and girls, guys because I didn't work with girls but at the time, but a lot of guys that would be very um, boisterous and you know they, they give the talk, but they don't necessarily always walk the walk. So you get a lot of people out there, they were going, I can't wait to go, wait until we get out there. Um, you get other people that are fairly quiet, uh, but good soldiers, um, and they're very good at being on tour. Um, and then you get others who would just, they joined the army, but they didn't really want to go on tour. Now they're, they're forced into it. And yeah. you can you can see a million miles away that they don't want to be there. I, I was always very much, I was a fairly quiet person, um, but I, I love soldiering and being out there was, I, I instantly took to it. I, I wasn't necessarily terrified of all the rounds going down, everything that we had to do um, on the battlefield, um, where you got others that you'd thought that would have been shining, but actually they were, they were shitting themselves and they were scared um, very obviously. Uh, but no, I, I really enjoyed it. It was fighting pretty much every single day. The Taliban were out there. Every village, we were because we were in vehicles, we were given uh, basically a car to roam wherever we wanted. We just got told, go to an area, go to a village, chase the Taliban out. You would, we just get there to fight, basically. And every time we went to a village, there would be Taliban, and we would fight them, we'd chase them out. Um, and then we'd speak to the villagers, get some intel from them, and then we'll move forward to the next village, next village. And that's kind of how it went. And it was just, it was man-on-man um, -man fighting. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of IEDs or um, sneaky fighting going on at that moment in time. It was literally from door to door, just fighting all the time. So just to explain to anyone knows, so IEDs are improvised explosive devices and they were sort of used towards the back end um, or the back half of the Afghan war. It, that's that's correct. Yeah. They, in they, your experience. I would say um, maybe fairly Fairly early on, they were used, but they were very much used predominantly between the middle and the end of the tour, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, but, and not as much face-to-face um, uh, -face fighting was, was conducted. Yeah. When um when you were out there, so you were out there for six months? Uh, I think initially we were there for five months. Wasn't it? Five initially months, tour, yeah. yeah. And you really liked it, you enjoyed it, did you? Yeah? I did, I really enjoyed it. There was, I mean, unfortunately, we lost quite a lot of friends because it was, I think seven of our lads got killed, unfortunately. I was in a really big ambush, actually. Um, it's still to date in Afghanistan, one of the biggest ambushes. And it was one of the first times that um, an ID was actually used. Um, so what, hap what happened there, Paul? So we were in a place called Musakala. And my fear, we were going in to relieve some people in, in a barracks that had been overrun by the Taliban. The Taliban had said, look, you can, you can leave. But So we, we were a bit dubious of it. So we were going in to give them support in fire in case something kicked off. Um, but they obviously they tracked us coming in and they set up an ambush. Uh, I was the lead vehicle, and they had attacked us with rocket propelled grenades. And was that the f something I didn't include in Paul's intro? Is that's been blown up not once but twice. Yeah, was that the first time? This is the first time. Yeah, um, completely unexpected. Um, I'm, I remember standing up out of my vehicle and I saw an RPG coming towards me, and I was like, "Fuck, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead." Like, there's no two ways about it. We know what happens when an RPG hits a vehicle. It it goes. It pierces the armor. And it blows up and it sucks everything out. Yeah. Paul, what vehicles were you in as well? Scimitars, so small armoured oh, okay. fighting vehicles. At least you weren't in a Wimmick, I suppose. No, exactly. Yeah, well, exactly that. Um, but Can I, that, sorry as well, that's me being a bit blase. I wouldn't like to be blown up in anything, but <laughs> a Wimmick is really bad, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you sorry, that, saw that RPG coming towards you. Yeah, saw it coming towards me, but really strangely... A week prior to this, we'd been given this new thing called bar armor, as you probably yeah, know yeah. it now, but it was brand new to us. And someone came out into the middle of the field where it was in the desert and said, look, we're fitting this thing. But no one really explained to us what it was, what it was there for. So do you want to explain it? 
or hey, no, go, go ahead. Oh, okay, go yeah, ahead. So, but it's only because my mum will be listening. She'll be like, "What's bar armor?" <laughs> She's not even northern. I don't know why I did that accent. <laughs> um, so bar armor is bars that go on the outside of your vehicle, and they basically provide a standoff between the skin of the vehicle and whatever hits it. So an RPG, instead of hitting the vehicle, and because um, it's like a big molten slug that gets fired through the skin that will hit the bar armor go off and that standoff will basically protect stop that and just give you enough distance to stop that slug going through the through the um through the skin of the vehicle and killing everyone inside so yeah so that turned up getting fitted and you're like what is this gonna do i had no idea what it was didn't really care all i knew is that it helped me get on the vehicle quicker so that's all (laughs) and get off it easier oh this is amazing yeah exactly it was like having steps all around your vehicle um but so I inst- instantly in my head, I was like, well, I'm dead. This RPG is about to hit me. Uh, it hit the vehicle, hit the bar armor and blew blew up. Um, knocked me out. I, w- I fell into the vehicle. And then... But we, so were you at the back of the vehicle? I, so as the vehicles work, you get a driver at the front yeah. um, where the engine is. And then you get your commander and your gunner. And I was a gunner who stand in the turret or sit in the turret mm. um, at the sort of like mid to back of the of the vehicle. So it hit me pretty much direct to my right-hand side. I went flying into the vehicle. The whole vehicle was uh, blown apart. Another one hit the front and another one hit the left. So the, there was a proper um, well-planned ambush. There was a vehicle behind us that at, at the same time as this happening, they'd gone on top of this uh, some wood. And underneath this wood was loads of rockets and they detonated it as an IED. And this is one of the first IEDs in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, everyone in there got killed instantly. Um, now we were left alone we were left on our own because everyone else in our in our packet had gone because they thought everyone was dead they were like there's no one no way anyone survived that so they left us to get to the high ground to fight the Taliban that were were closing in which were over 100 of them um, which then left three of us with no comms to those above us so there were three dead in the vehicle behind you four behind us four behind you then your vehicle was immobilised our driver's completely knocked out. We don't know if he's dead or not. My commander's next to me, like, trying to get onto comms. Yeah. He can't get on comms. And we've got dozens and dozens of Talib- Taliban closing in. We've also got a Dushka, which is a heavy 50 cal machine gun, firing at our vehicle, which every time Iran hits, it's like a like a bulldozer hitting your vehicle. Uh, one of my section commanders said he was pinned down by, like, a Dushka 50 cal. And he was saying, it, mate, it's like having Coke cans, like, fired at you. He said, it's, he said it was terrifying. It, you feel, you, it's almost like you can feel it piercing you every yeah. time, even though it's hitting your, the armor. Um, and then instantly, my commander was like, "You've got to take out that Dushka gunner. You've got to take him out." Now, our guns are complete. Our, our our guns and the vehicle are completely gone. We got the, we can't use them. So I've got my SAA team, my normal rifle, <laughs> um, and just and because it's just been covered in dust, it's not firing properly. So I've got to cock every single round. So I'm trying to get this Dushka gunner. So it's me versus a Dushka gunner <laughs> with a with a wrong round cock. And I, I managed to get him, thankfully. Yeah. And then I was just throwing grenades at the guys that were approaching us. And then eventually we had to bug out of our vehicle, got our driver. He he woke up and then we, we managed to bug out, bug out and then throw through some smoke. And the guys above us saw that we were there and someone came down and rescued us and got us out. So that was the first real big occasion in, in Afghanistan. And how long have you been there at that point? I think we were about three months in, three and a half months in. Halfway point, all right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so... Just another two months to go, mate. Do you know what I mean? That's mad. But, you know, but from then, that happened. You, there was no time to sort of think about anything. Yeah, no, I get we got, that. We got flown instantly back to camp. There was a vehicle waiting for us. We jumped in it, and then we came back out again. And then we carried on to the next village and carried on our, our duties. There was no, like... There was no... No one even spoke about it. We just lost four of our friends behind us. 
there was no even there no one even said like guys let's just take a minute to like reflect on what's just happened it was like right guys we'll move on to the next village it was almost surreal like it didn't matter it didn't happen off you go again when you progressed up the ranks did you look back on that and think something happens like because you would have been 19 mm. did you look back on that and think someone should have just said you're yeah. right mate or yeah absolutely I mean at the time you're young um, you you don't want to show weakness either, do you? Yeah, to yourself or to yeah. other people. And and I remember at the end, they were like, right, I think we get, got given a talk. They said, you might have um, some nightmares, some reoccurring memories. They will fade in time. Don't worry about them. Um, and I'm, I, I remember going on leave and I did. I had like, like nightmares every single night. But I was because I had a bit of money in my pocket and had a bit of leave, I was just going out drinking and enjoying my, enjoying my time, my freedom. Um, and I was just brushing these nightmares and these feelings aside and... As if like it was nothing. I thought, well, they were phased. Um, that's what they said. So that was tour number one. So you come back from there. Like, what happened? Um, did you get promoted? Or because I'm yeah. guessing you did all right. On well, it sounds like you did all right. Do you know what I mean? On tour number one. Like, what happened after that? Yeah, I, I got a, I got um, a real feel for it. I loved yeah. it. I loved being out there. I loved what we were doing. Um, it really changes your your mindset and your mentality. Um, how you see things. You know, you become very much. Um, warrior mindset and yeah. you, you get a taste for it as well so another so tour came up that was sorry Herrick 4 and what year was that 2006 2006 yeah um, when I went back to camp there was a thing called uh, COPS so it's Closed Observation Post they used them mainly in Northern Ireland and it's a bit more of a specialised unit that people joined and um, fought to do specific mini- missions in small man teams um, but non like special forces uh, just in the army and they would they were putting another we were putting one together for Iraq, um, and I put my name, my name down. I said, like, "Yeah, I'll do that. That sounds amazing. Mm. Completely different to what I was just doing, like proper proper covert surveillance." Um, so I went on to the course, passed it. Um, what was that course like? It was good. It was I think it was about Where was tw- it ran out of about twelve weeks long. Maybe it's down in Warminster, um, in Salisbury. So you do a lot of uh, covert stuff, a lot of tactical training, and then you move. You do a lot of Working like apartments, dr- setting up covert um, OPs, looking on people going clubbing and and you know fake targets etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but, you know it was really exciting. And we went to Iraq and we done that. And we were in four man teams hiding out in bushes and rooftops, um, doing all sorts of stuff. What you know, just gathering intelligence on insurgents that are, you know sometimes would be in a bush, and it, we could be there for anything between two to three weeks, and no one even knows we're there. And hundred plus insurgents could walk two meters in front of you with all their weapons, and they don't even know you're there. You're there, so a whole new experience. Was that building like a OPs? Was it OPs? Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, mate. That sounds awesome. How long was that tour? That was seven months. Most of my tours were seven months from now, and I yeah. think that was kind of a bit of a regular thing. That's then. a long time. How did you sort of deal with that, like with family and, and friends back in the UK? I've never been an emotionally attached person, so for me, it wasn't too bad. Um, you get two weeks off in between. I, I actually gave my two weeks up because a friend of mine just had a baby when he was on leave and he, the baby wasn't delivered until right at the end of his R&R. So I said, can he take my, t- my two weeks R&R so that he can stay out for another two weeks? So I, I sacrificed mine, which meant, which is great for me because all I wanted to do was go on these missions and do these ops. <laughs> they were really exciting. I didn't yeah. want to go back home. What was the point in that? So yeah, I managed to get a seven-month solid tour in. Did you get anything in return before we <laughs> off that geezer? Did he come back? Oh, there's a Harry, pack of Haribo, mate. Do you know what? I was speaking to him the other day. He came and saw me on my on the run, but yeah. we'll speak to, speak about in a bit. And um, I, I told, I said to him, oh, you know, 
I, I can't remember. He didn't do something. So jokingly, I was like, oh, well, that's nice. I gave you two weeks. And I'm like, oh, no. He went, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did, you cheeky git. I said, <laughs> like, well, why do you think you got two, an extra two weeks? I went, oh, I thought he just gave it to me. I said, oh, <laughs> mate, that was my R&R. So, yeah. He's only just found out recently that it was me that gave it to him. Yeah, I hope he gave you a big donation. Uh, yeah, yeah. What, <laughs> what, um, what was one of the best ops that you did while you were in Iraq? Uh, there was a police station, and it's called the PJOX. Um, I can't remember what the abbreviation was for. So anyone that's been in Iraq will know what the PJOX is. This little police station surrounded by loads of sc- um, sky rises, and it's known as um, sni- Sniper Alley or Sniper Valley. Yeah. Um, and we were on top of the roof. No one goes on top of the roof because you just get sniped. But we managed to build a little hut, and we were watching all the insurgents going in and out of these different buildings and gathering information. Um, and th- so that was that was very cool. No one knew we was there, and and you're not supposed to be up there. So that that was good. There was another one that we done um, that actually there's a river that separates Iraq and Iran, and there's a little island in between that no one really governs or has. Yeah. Uh, we actually went to go and put cameras in facing Iran because they were bringing weapons over and they wanted us to, to verify it um, and that was a real dodgy really dodgy mission and, and we lost comms with the, um, the the sky that was watching that was watching us there's only three of us and then two boats from Iran came over to the island and they were searching for us because they thought they heard something and all we had was one rifle and one magazine uh, and all these camera equipment so we just had to lay up. Throwing a lens at them if <laughs> it kicks off. But. We were just we were just had our rifles pointed, ready to shoot if they saw us. That was it. And uh, thankfully, they didn't got back on the boat and went back, and we just bugged out as quick as possible. Gee, like, how do you do? You come back from those like, like that sort of often think Fuck, I'm not getting paid enough for this, like, or or were you just like, yeah, it was exciting, mate. I loved it. It's just exciting. I loved it. Yeah. Some people join the military, especially during the tour times, for money, for something to do. And others join it for the thrill and the buzz, and I'm very—I was very much the one who was for the thrill and the buzz. So it was for me. It was just, yeah, I just loved doing it. So yeah, that was a, a rack. And then what was um? How long were you in the UK for until you went back out to Afghanistan? So I came back, and my regiment were going out again to Afghanistan, and I wanted to jump on that. But my regiment actually said, "Look, you've just done two back-to-back tours. They were both pretty hairy in their own rights." Um, I was a physical training instructor, so they said, "We're sending you down to." Um, Royal Armour Corps Phase 2 to go and train the guys in for physical yeah. training so I went and done that for two years how was that? it was a lot, it was good a lot of fun tracksuit soldier for a couple of years yeah. um, got to experience what it's like to help train the younger guys in, to give them a bit of um, inspiration and have have a bit of impact on, on their lives so yeah I really enjoyed it I want my Phase 2 our Phase 2 establishment now and um, I just recently been on N18 and this guy comes up to me he's like oh you're right cool how's it going I said oh really sorry mate like I don't remember yet and he's like oh and I said no no that's a good thing because I guarantee you can still remember the absolute pain in your asses, but you can't remember the good blokes or like the sort of grey men can you like no. what what sort of challenges did you see when you were there with like some of the recruits you must have sort of a few names in mind ah Smith yeah there were some and you, you'd see some that just came in to just be really rebellious they didn't really care that they were there they'd obviously had quite a few issues through their childhood for whatever reasons um, and they just didn't want to listen. They would do everything they could to just ignore you. Um, but I saw that as a good challenge. I saw that, you know, i I'd been in similar positions. I've seen people um, from them backgrounds before as I was growing up. And there's always more to those people. It's not just a case that they're an idiot or a dickhead. And, you know, there's, if you can delve into them a little bit, get, inspire them. And 
quite often through fitness you can do that if you can say look there's more to you you don't have to be this person that's always gobbing off or always doing the wrong thing deliberately you know you're a better person than that and for some of them it worked for some it didn't they and then they'd, they'd very quickly be kicked out for whatever yeah, reason yeah, yeah. oh mate we've had a few i won't name names but real <laughs> nightmare um nightmares um so you finish your sort of two years there um and then you've gone back ready to go back out to Afghanistan again. At this point, had you started to notice like an effect in some of your friends or because you lost you'd, quite a few of your friends had taken their own lives. Had that started to creep in yet or was that more towards yeah. um, your other later tours? No, I hadn't heard. To be fair, like... How old were you at this point? At this point, um, at the end of the two years down at the PT yeah. school, I would have been... 22 years old so still fairly young yeah yeah um i was i was a full screw so i was a corporal at this point as well so i promoted fairly young um and the words like depression or anxiety or mental health it just wasn't in my vocabulary i wouldn't have, if someone would have said to me what's depression i'd be like i have no idea what you're talking about um so there were people that were struggling with mental health things especially from the first tour do you look back and you think because like we sort of spoke before we started recording people drinking every night and at the time you're like oh he just loves a beer do you know what I mean and then you're like hang on he's having like 10 beers like a night here something yeah. right yeah I mean I had lots of friends that would just drink on their own and I, in my head at that time I was just thinking what a weirdo you know I would never associate it with anything else other than you know he's got issues or you know, he's got drinking problems mm. um, it was always him you know it was his problem it wasn't mm. a bigger picture um, and, but obviously it came to light further down the line you know, that, that people did have issues some people left the army because they couldn't cope with stuff but in my head that was just seen as a bit of like weakness and I was thinking well they can't cope with it they can't deal with it it's, again that's their issue Yeah. Um, almost like oh good riddance we don't need you then yeah you know exactly I mean? Exactly. In, in a way but you know I wasn't as, as like uh, ruthless as that yeah, but yeah. It just, it just it would, they'd just be gone it'd be like yeah. oh, okay whatever um, sometimes I heard people, oh, he's got depression. I'd be like, he's got depression? What for? You know, what's what's the reason for it? And I, I almost dismissed it in my head as, as it's no, it's nothing, or, or they're, they're trying to pull a card or trying to pull a fast yeah, one or whatever yeah. it is. Um, but yeah, end, end of the the, the uh, PTI training, or PTI uh, uh, down at the, uh, the school, I went straight on to another tour. I actually, I was thinking about joining the Special Forces at the time, so yeah. I was going through the, about the, the training and the cadre, and then an opportunity to come, came up to go and join the Pathfinders on a tour in Afghanistan. And I thought, oh, what a great stepping stone yeah, to yeah. join the Pathfinders as part of the Brigade Reconnaissance Force yeah, in so Afghanistan. Pathfinders, they're a unit that work within 16-hour assault brigade. And they're like the sort of recce element, aren't they, for that, for that whole brigade? Just for anyone that doesn't know, God. So you were saying Afghanistan. Yeah, they're, they're very much a specialised unit, yeah, very yeah. clever, um, very swept up with everything they do. Um, so I went to Afghanistan with them as part of the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, and we we were in jackals at this and what, point. What Herrick was this? This Herrick thirteen. Thirteen, and this was would have been what two thousand and ten, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, yeah. Two, two ten to two eleven, so yeah, yeah. winter tour. Um, yeah, I was out there, and we had a, we had a great tour. It was it was nowhere near as fast and as furious as Herrick four. But there were some, it was a lot of driving to compounds and then going from compound to compound. So it's very much kicking down doors and fighting a lot more closer fighting than it was in Herrick 4 as well. Um, but that was fun. But then again, that was the second time I got blown up, um, this time by an improvised explosive device. Um, so thankfully, we all managed to get out of it um, almost unscathed. There was a few injuries in there, but nothing major. Did you sustain any injuries? 
I didn't. Both times I never sustained any real injuries. Um, I got a bit of shrapnel to my legs, but nothing major. Oh, you need to start playing the lottery every week, mate. <laughs> you know I mean? You're a lucky geezer. I know, mate. But there's been other times. There was another time um, later on, another tour, my fourth tour on Herrick 18. An engineer, a guy called Dan Bedford, um, he actually saved my life. Did he win an MC? I don't know. Not that I know he, of. He's bold. Uh, I don't know. If he wasn't then. Oh, okay. He wasn't then. Um, yeah. He got big... I don't think he would be bored, to be fair. Oh, okay, no. Only because there was a full screw that took me through training, Bedford, and he, engineer, obviously. And um, he, won a, he won an MC, so I don't know if yeah. it's the same guy. Sorry, anyway, you were saying. No, we, we, were, we went into a compound. We were, I think it was a, near Yak Chow or something, and we'd taken this hut, and I'd found all this information in this hut, loads of commander's books, loads of weapons, um, all these walkie-talkies with them talking at the time, and I was giving them to all, all the intel, the intelligence a lot, and they were going, wow, this is amazing. And I'd gone back to that hut and I'd found a commander's uh, pistol holster hanging from the ceiling. And I was like, oh, look at this. And I was like, like, looked around for any wires, no nothing. And just, that's all about to step forward. This engineer down Bedford grabbed me by the, put his arms around me and pulled me back. And we both fell to the ground. I was like, what are you doing? What did you do that for? And he was like, mate, just, I think there's a bit of soft sand next to that rug. And we pulled the rug up and just where my foot was about to land was the biggest pressure plate you'd ever see. So there was another time there, you know, there's, these occasions just come up all the time. So I am very grateful and very lucky to still be here. Do you know how big the, the charge was? It was big. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you. I don't know the ins and outs, but yeah. as a visual, as you can see, <laughs> it was probably about a metre long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A big long Yeah, um, plate. That's terrible for the podcast. Cause yeah. <laughs> but a metre long, it was a great visual. So that was Herrick 18. That was your fourth one. And then you come back. And what rank are you now? So I'm now a sergeant, so sergeant corporal yeah. of forces we say in our regiment, oh, okay, yeah. but a sergeant, yeah. How was um how was that going from just being a bod to you know leading and how did you tr try and teach the lessons to the lads that you learned on your first tours to, so they were a bit more prepared? Well, by this point, I'd done so many tours. I'd done pretty much every reconnaissance course you can do, um, senior brecken, junior brecken, a bunch of other different courses. Um, so I had a decent reputation. So a lot of people were looking for me, looking to me for quite a lot of experience, and and um, I knew the ground, I knew the areas. So I felt fairly confident in what I was doing, and it was it was great. Um, either as a section commander or a platoon commander, you're leading the men more. You're giving um, advice. You're actually making decisions on the ground, and it's I absolutely loved it. I love being a bod because you just do what you're told. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's not a great deal of responsibility, um, but as a leader, it does give you that extra bit of uh, uh, mindset and uh, power and a bit of resilience and knowing that you actually making a difference to what's happening on the ground yeah when so the way an infantry platoon works so you've got obviously the troop commander and then the troops aren't sits below them what like advice would you give to them because a lot's expected of those young troop commanders mm. when they're t technically in charge but they've just been to sanders like they haven't so how did how did you help them and what sort of lessons do you teach them i think quite often how it normally works and certainly with us the troop leaders, they, or the troop commanders, they certainly have a vital part to play. They're they're in, they're intelligent, they're clever, they're very good at being rational as well. Yeah. Um, which is good sometimes, and sometimes it's not. So a good uh, troop sergeant, a good troop commander, they will work well together. The officer will come up and deliver the mission how they believe it's going to happen, how it's going to play out, and then they'll listen to a troop sergeant. And then the troop sergeant and the troop com um, commander would then listen to the section commanders and all the other guys involved because everyone has their part to play. Everyone has yeah. a different, you know, so 
the the lead scout knows more about the ground than the troop sergeant does or, tro- or the troop commander. So you need to listen to the troop scout. Well, look at Bedford, mate. Saw it, the saw the light sand, mate. Saved your life. Exactly, yeah. And you, everyone's just looking out for each other. You know, the, the GPMG gunner, the machine gunner, he knows more about what positions to look down, where people are poking their heads up from, the snipers, the, you know, it's, everyone has their vital part to play. So it's, it, there is no such thing as one person's com- decision yeah, or yeah. one person's tactics. It's, it's everyone. And I think we, we, we learned that a lot in as we, as we progressed through Afghanistan. At the beginning of it, and I think in the earlier Iraqs and before that, it was very much you get told what to do and that's it. But now everyone speaks to each other. Everyone has a part to play. Yeah. So you come back off Herrick 18. How long until you're back on your final tour of Afghanistan? Well, what happened is I came back from Herrick 18 and I was on um, some career calls and I started suffering really badly with paranoia. I didn't know where it was coming from. Never had this before. And I started thinking everyone was out for me. Everyone was trying to get me. And then I started suffering with sleep. And I reckon in about two weeks, I probably had about 10 hours sleep. It was really bad. And uh, I didn't know what was going on. I was, my head was all over the place. I didn't know what to say to anyone. I was trying to like just deal with it and let it pass. And then um, a doctor saw me. And he was like, Look, "You're all over the place. You know, you can't do this course. We're sending you back." So he sent me back, and I thought, "Well, I'm going to get some help for whatever's going on." Um, and then they put me in charge of um, the BRF, the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, which is a whole bunch of men and a bunch of vehicles. Which I was like, "Oh bloody! Hell, I've got even more pressure on me now." And this stuff is still going on. Um, and things just progressed re- that terribly wrong from there. Everywhere I went on the trains, or I went out, everyone out on the bus, walking down the street, I just thought people were following me. Um, and because I didn't, I, I was, I didn't know what was right and what was wrong. I didn't know whether the paranoia was right and it, there was something going on, or my, my other conscience was telling me that this just me being paranoid. It was, it was a very confusing time. Um, and a few incidents happened from there, which which was really bad. For example. I was in London one day in the middle of the day and I thought I saw an, a, a man an Asian man with a bag on his back and I thought he had a bomb in it so I, I convinced myself that he, that was a bomb and I needed need to save everyone so I jumped on him held his hands down and I said to everyone to run I said he's got a bomb so everyone ran off police came in Bob's, bomb squad came in called in the area checked the guy and next thing you know I'm in handcuffs and then they took him to the police station and that was kind of like you know, the big wake up call like there's something yeah. wrong um so, so what my regiment done, we're quite fortunate where we've got a ceremonial side, which I've never been to by this stage. Yeah. Uh, what, about 14, 15 years into my career here? And they sent me over there to go and work the horses, get me away from um, yeah, you yeah. Know, the, the more aggressive side of the of combat role. Um, and that really helped to an extent. And But then once I'd finished there after two years, I went back to Afghanistan for nine months. Um, and that's, that's when like, everything went, you know, it just triggered everything again, um, which is very confusing when you have all these sort of like horrible triggers that mess, it's messing with your brain and your mind because it's something that you love. All I wanted to do was go out there and do stuff or be part of the army and do everything. But now all of a sudden, any any time I'm involved with weapons or around certain people or going on tours, it's trigger stuff that I, ca- I had no control over. And uh, it was really affecting my mental health. What role were you doing? What, Eric, would that have been as well? So this was actually... Toral Four. So this is like the aftercare. So we were training the Afghanistan um, special forces and Afghan officers out there. Um, that was when was that? This was this would have been two thousand and fourteen. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. two thousand seventeen. Sorry, two thousand seventeen. 
So you've gone out there, you're having, and then what did they fly back early, or did you just have to sort of like make do for nine months? No, I just had to do uh, nine months. Yeah, just stayed out there. I hated every single second of it. Every day um, became very uh, secluded. A lot, lots of people would want to come up with different things to do, like different activities, and I was just like, I just didn't want to know. All I wanted to do was get out of that place. I just, yeah. I hated it. Um, but and then once I came back, yeah, I just fell into like because my head was all over the place I didn't know anyone to talk to I didn't know what was going on I turned to a bit you know not heavily but I would go out quite often even on my own go to a pub and drink and which is something that I would never normally do mm. I just didn't I didn't want to be around anyone but I also didn't want to be on my own it was a very confusing time what sort of brought you out of that well I um there was a doctor in my regiment really good guy because in my regiment doctors don't move around they stay there so this doctor's been there for my whole career he knew me quite well um, he'd he'd been watching my my, um, my progress in my career and also like, sort of my demise, if you like. He'd seen that there'd been problems and he'd tried to speak to me before, but I didn't want to. And he'd seen that there's some, I was going through some major problems. He kind of said, look, Paul, my door's open. And he just kept telling me, my door's open, my door's open. And during this stage, I started to lose. I started to know people in the armed forces and friends that started taking their lives. And I was, stay, I, I was pretty much... Um, bedroom bound I hardly ever left my, my my bedroom unless I was going to work and then I'd come straight back again I just didn't want to be around anyone um, I was, I'd say I was heavily paranoid I was suffering massive with anxiety because of the because of the paranoia and I was suffering with depression because of the anxiety and I was really worried that I was probably going to be an, another one of these people or one of my friends that were taking their lives I didn't know what what having, what was coming next for me for the next day or how, how much longer I could deal with these emotions and and, and problems and one day I went to my doctor and I just said, I need help. I, I, like, it's even now or I'm worried that something's going to happen. Um, got me, he got, instantly got me lots of help. Uh, but I'd say, unfortunately for me, the help that was getting in the armed forces wasn't any good because the way I saw, I saw it and it's the way I explained it to them was whatever was affecting me, affecting my mind that I couldn't control was in the armed forces environment. And I'd say to them, my doctor, look, if I was a, a burns victim, Next, you wouldn't treat me next to an open fire or if I was uh, in a road traffic accident you wouldn't treat me next to a motorway but I'm in the armed forces and you're treating me in an armed forces environment so I'm, I can't get the help because I'm stuck in whatever's causing this, this trauma I sort of thought as soon as you see the weapons of that that would trigger you again set you off yeah exactly just being in the environment which again it's, it's very conflicting because it's it's my life it's what yeah, I've done yeah, yeah. this is who I am like you said it's what you loved it's what I loved yeah but it's also what was, was what was destroying me um so eventually, I've done quite a bit of help, uh, quite a bit of counselling. Nothing really worked for me. Um, and I, it, it, to be fair, it made me feel more of a victim. Um, and I, I just didn't feel good about myself. So I, I was in a corridor in, in my in my regiment. And unfortunately, um, one of the guys, a good friend of mine, who just lived a couple of doors up from me, um, one night he took his life. He hung himself in our corridor. And that was a bit of a catalyst for me. And I was like, right, I am, I feel like I'm probably going to be the next guy and I don't want to be. So I've, I'm, I'll take control here. So I went and saw my doctor. And I said, I need to sign off for three months. I need to get out of here. He said, yes, sign me off for three months. I went and rented a house somewhere and I'd spent three months, three solid months just learning different ways of how I can improve my mental well-being. And I just read books, listened to podcasts, um, went on YouTube, Googled, everything you could think of. And I, I learned stuff from like nutrition, breathing techniques and meditation. I learned about cold water therapy, affirmations, journaling, just so many different things that you know I, I wasn't really aware of and how they can like, make you feel better. 
and podcasts are really good um, uh, motivational speakers as well they're really good and I started implementing all these different stuff and within weeks I felt great I felt better than I've ever felt in my whole life and I was like bloody hell and that's all it really yeah. took these simple but basic but effective different techniques but more importantly I was taking control I wasn't I wasn't having to sit down and listen to someone and try to relive all, all these problems. Now, for some people, that's fantastic. It works for them. But for some others, it doesn't. Um, and I felt really good. So, but I also knew dozens of people that were struggling in the same way. It wasn't. I wasn't an isolated case by far. So I started reaching out to some friends saying, look, let me help you with these different methods I've, I've learned. And they started getting better. And then they started reaching out to their friends and their friends. And before you know it, I had about... 30 to 40 different people on my books that I was helping on a daily basis and um, I just knew I wanted to take it further. When did the charity, the idea for the charity, was that when it sort of came to came to light, that light bulb moment, you read, ah, oh, I need to do something here? Not quite at that moment. I, I, I knew that I wanted to help more people but I didn't really know how to go about it. Um, yeah. I went back to my regiment and the doctor had made, the doctors and psychiatrists had made the decision that um, my service was no longer required yeah. because of my mental well-being which was a complete devastation for me. I yeah. was like, well, what am I going to do? Um, this is all I've ever wanted to do. I, I was going to be you know, uh, an LE, so an officer at some point, and be in the army till I was 65 years old, yeah. and now you're telling me at 35 I, can't, I can no longer be in. Um, and so, and also I was still struggling, struggling when I went back into the armed forces. I wasn't fixed, I wasn't like, perfect, but I had found ways to make myself feel better. So um, the pandemic happened. So I managed to escape to Scotland with some ah, friends. That old thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> thing. I don't know if anyone can remember. Um, but yeah, I, I managed to escape to Scotland in the Highlands with three friends, which was fantastic. And uh, I just, I remember I was up to a lock called Lock, Tot Lock Tay, I think it was. Yeah, Lock Tay. And I was, I, just, I remember saying to my mates, "I'm going to run around that." They were, they were like, "Mate, that's well far. Like, you can't run around that." I said, "I am at some point. I'm going to do it." I just had this feet, this like calling to run around it. And I end up um, towards the end of the the lockdown. I said, "Right, I'm going. I'm going to go and run it." So I ran it. It was 34 miles. It's further than I'd ever run. I yeah. probably ran a marathon before, but wow, rookie numbers, mate. 34 yeah, miles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I ran around it, and it just came to me as an epiphany. Like, set up a charity, set up a retreat, teach people all these different like positive mindset methods that you that you've learned yourself, and that you, that you've been helping other people with. Um, and and I was and during the run I was like well how am I going to like promote this charity how am I going to get people to know about it and again it just came to me well run around the whole United Kingdom talking about it what better way than than going around the perimeter and reaching everyone um, so I had no idea then I went back wrote down everything I thought of and then I had to come up with you know I can't do this charity on my own I need people uh, around it to, to help but not just anyone but people who are really going to have a big effect so I kind of came up with a bunch of names of people that I thought would really help and I had the top three people uh, approach them. After a couple of weeks, they all agreed. They said, yeah, fantastic idea. And we sat down, come up with a business plan, how we're going to develop this retreat, what we're gonna, what's, what it's going to take to do it, how much is it going to cost. Um, and then we started putting the, the motion, uh, everything into motion. Wow, no, that's amazing, man. That's amazing. What date was that? So this would have been, oh, blimey, this would have been, like, what, uh, April, May, June-ish of 2020? April, May. And then, so how do you even start a charity? Like, you have to obviously have to register it and that. Oh, it's such a, it, I mean, this is a pandemic as yeah, well, don't yeah, forget. Yeah. So, so charities are starting to disband. They couldn't financially keep themselves going. So yeah. I, 
I spoke to the charity commission board and I was like, well, we want to start a charity. And they were like, well, who are you? What what affiliation do you have to charities? What sort of experience have you got? And I was like, uh, none to every answer, <laughs> to every question. I'm absolutely clueless, mate. <laughs> yeah, I've just been in the army running yeah. around with a gun for the last yeah, 18 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. I've been tabbing up the gaff, looking well tasty, mate. <laughs> Giving it big licks on the general in Afghanistan. <laughs> exactly. So they were like, ah, oh, okay, well, um, you know, maybe have a little think about whether you want to do this. You might want to just do like a fundraiser for a charity. I was like, no, no, we want to start a charity. Like we've got a business plan. We want to start actioning it. So they told me the process and it, we went through one way, it didn't work. Another way, it didn't work, it didn't work. And it was just like, you know, it was just demoralizing. But we just kept at it. Um, and a few months down the line, we found the angle and, and the route in. And it's just a process you got to go through. There's lots and lots of red tape. Um, there's different statuses to charities as well. So there's four charities, which are four non-profit charities, which is about makes up about 5% of the charities in the UK. And then you've got sort of like investment charities where people can invest into, but then they take a bit of the profit, but that's a good way to get charities up and running, get some yeah. money. Um, we decided we didn't want to be an investment charity because we didn't want to be manipulated by people coming in. We, we want to be fully transparent, but also yeah. you get big tax benefits by being a full non-profit charity. Um, so we were dedicated to go down that route, which made it a lot harder, but we did it. And we got, we got full status as of August uh, last year, 2021. Oh, amazing. So it, take, it takes a while then? It takes, like, it take, yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a long time. Um, well, I suppose that's a good thing, isn't it? People committing charity fraud and that, sure. I mean, it's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's way to do it. Exactly. So you wanted to launch this charity with a big event and you came up with a run round um, great... Well, the whole of the UK. How, how was that? What was the start like? And, and explain that whole journey because, you know, 218 days, mate. It was, it was a big old beast, wasn't it? It was a big old beast. 218 days, but... I actually was going to do it during the winter, which I'm so glad I didn't do. Yeah, um, so, no, so so I was getting discharged from the armed forces from the army on the 27th of November 2020. So I said, "Let's, I'm going to start the run on the 28th." I thought, "What a great way that that way, like I'm not really leaving. I'm going straight into something." Yeah, yeah. So I set it all up, and it was, um, I I only initially just set it just to see what would happen. So I put it out on on YouTube or not YouTube, like on like, Facebook or something and then loads of people were like oh this is amazing great i mean everyone was like buzzing because covid was coming to yeah. the end or they didn't know what was going on and everyone had there was a great community spirit after covid yeah, yeah. and then loads of people and then next next thing you know i got a phone call from the bbc saying do you want to come to the bbc and talk about your run and i was like oh my god like i only like was just telling a couple of mates the next thing you know i'm on bbc and i was like well i've got to do it now and i've, I've, I've already said that i was doing it on 28 thousands of people started messaging me getting in, in touch saying they want to help and i was like oh, well, i've got to do it um and then like, I got rid of the house that I was renting, sold my car, boxed all my stuff away, five days away with my bag, waiting to go. And then another lockdown came. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, that's it. Like, I'm like, what am I going to do now? Um, so I had to, I had to postpone that. Yeah. And then I was like, well, I'll wait for the lockdown to finish. And another one came. So I thought, what? Well, I'm just going to put a date on the 1st of March, 2023. Surely it's all going to be over by then. And then I started training with one of the, best ultra marathon runners in the UK called Carla Molinaro. I approached her. She said she was she her books were fully booked. She couldn't take me in. But she loved the course. She gave me loads of advice. We had loads of conversations. She's a lovely person. And then one day she just phoned me and said, Look, I really want to help you with this run. I'll take you on as, as a as your coach. Yeah. So I had her as my coach and I learned so much about ultra marathon running and long distance multi day running. Yeah. 
Mate, no, that's epic. Absolutely epic. So what was the start date? Uh, 1st of March 2020, 2022. 2022. What was that first uh, week like? Uh, crazy. So the first few weeks, um, I started in Liverpool and I went clockwise. So I ran around England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Isle of Wight and Isle of Man. Stop. Why did you start in Liverpool? Uh, the reason I started in Liverpool was because, I, one, I wanted to get Scotland out of the way as, as a psychological thing. Yeah, yeah, no, just, I like that. Let's just get this done, this big lump up here. Um, but also, I wanted to evade uh, midgy season. So <laughs> And, and they, they come in the billions in, yeah, the, yeah. in the west of Scotland. Yeah, so. Otterburn. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> we know yeah. it well. Exactly. Mate, I remember we was... Kukubri. Mate, we were up there and uh, a guy called Willis, mate, didn't have a, like a mozzie net. And um, we'd been like doing this OP all night anyway. He come out right, and I kid you not, he looked like, like a, you see, ever seen Bear Grylls? He get stung <laughs> by that thing. He looked like that, just proper elephant. Yeah, but yeah, but you couldn't make out any features. Like his eyes were like swollen shut. Oh, he was horrific. Well, I, I, I've seen all this before, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm like, this. I'm not going. I need to get this out of the way before the midges come. Um, so I looked at a city that was fairly close to Scotland that I could do, and I thought, well. Liverpool, kind of. If I do Liverpool, that's me. I've done the northwest of England then, and then I can go around Scotland. Um, and also, Liverpool's quite a big city, so that's a great yeah, place yeah. to start and finish. Hopefully, get lots of people joining me at the end. Yeah, and the Scousers love it as well. Don't and they, the Scousers love the military, yeah. huge military community up yeah. there. So, all yeah. in the Irish Guards. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> it. yeah, exactly. Um, so that was it. Yeah, and um, the first few weeks were difficult, but my coach Carla, she said, "Paul, you're gonna feel so many pains, so many niggles. You're gonna think you're injured." She said, "You're not injured. You'll know if you're injured because yeah. you can't move." She went, "But if you're still moving and you generally haven't broken anything, then it will pass. Yeah. It might take a two, one, day, one, two, three days, but it will pass." Mate, it's the same with a row, mate. That first week tough. You get used to that isolationism. Your body, your back hurts. Your hands hurt. You've got all these sores everywhere. And then, like after that week, it's just like you know your backside, your hands just adapt, and like you just you don't get any more like chafe, and it's it's bizarre, mate. Isn't it? Like, it is, you know, isn't it? And then just into it, and, like I remember that first week, I was like missing, oh, I was like, oh, I miss my family so much. Like, I just want to be at the pub with the boys. And then after like phew, that first sort of five days, I was like, oh, I just miss food. Then like <laughs> for, for the for the last hundred odd days, mate, it's nuts. But it's good to be in that sort of survival mode, isn't it? To yeah, push yourself yeah. to that. Because then you start to actually appreciate the little things in life. Like eating. Like We play that for granted. But eating is like it's an absolute you know, privilege. Oh, it's magical, isn't it? Like, it is. Honestly, like... The smallest thing. Yeah, like, yeah, you, yeah. you had all those Pringles, right? Yeah. And that you found, I think you said to me, you found a Pringle one day and it was yeah, like yeah. all your Christmas has yeah, come yeah, at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was one of Pringles. So I, well, I only took two tubes of Pringles for 111 days. That's the only Christmas I took. So that was stupid. But it was a dairy milk. Oh, yeah. It was dairy milk from one of my trading rows, right? So I was having a little stock check and I found this dairy milk and I was like... Like, literally, nearly tears of joy, mate. For this and dairy milk's... <laughs> They're like, don't go on, they're nice, but they're not that good. But honestly, I was buzzing. Like, I don't think I've ever been so happy in my life. Yeah. Like, literally ever. <laughs> it's a little, little thing, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it is good. Um, but I, I was very fortunate on my run. I mean, I'd, I'd, so much logistics went into it beforehand that I'd done. And I, the, the key thing for me was it wasn't just running. It was actually to go around and talk to people, meet people, yeah. meet veterans from... Because our charities fought every service, for the Army, Navy, Royal Marines... Yeah. And for people still serving, veterans, including reservists. So there's so many people that it, it it can help. And I wanted to talk to people from all around the UK and find out what's going right, what's going wrong, what they need, what they don't need. So it was a real market research as well as yeah. just a run. I was giving talks. I was having business meetings with different companies and corporates and armed forces people. Um, 
and also I was asking people to join me on the run so I wasn't so so lonely yeah. and it was brilliant I had over 700 people join me for uh, I stayed with a different family every single day so yeah. you know over 200 families I stayed with from lords MPs teachers fishermen veterans yeah. everyone so it was a real adventure how did that um how did you meet these families to stay with them just like facebook social media or was did your team like ah oh, paul you're running to 26 albany street <laughs> like, like how did that all sort of fall into place so i i set up every single destination prior oh, really? so i knew exactly where i was stopping oh, okay. and then it was a case of like lots of people had seen stuff either on tv or magazines or papers so they yeah. came forward and they, they, they'd email said look i live in this area get in touch and you can stay with stay with me or because I've been in the armed forces for a long time, it's such a big community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone knows someone who knows someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's kind of how it worked. And and the, the first, especially in Scotland, Scotland's such a lovely place where each the, it's, you only have like small towns and villages on the coastline, but they all know each other. Yeah. So I'll go to one village, and they'll be like, "Oh, where are you going next?" I'm X Y Z, and they'll, they'll go, "Oh, let's phone them up." And they phone up their friends, either the villages in between or or that village at the end, and they'll be like, "This runner's coming through. Can you can you welcome him in?" So I'll get to the village or the town and there'll be like 40, 50 people standing outside just clapping me in. Even if it's raining or house yeah. they, they don't care about the weather up in Scotland. No, they don't. They're well, just it's bad, in it? So they need to just <laughs> get on with it. <laughs> exactly. And they're just such lovely people. And uh, and if I didn't have somewhere to stay, someone knew someone. Yeah. What was um the toughest part of, that, of the run? Oh, it's, it's difficult. Um, the toughest part... They were, I was very fortunate not to have any major injuries, mm. um, especially considering the amount of coastline I went over, um, the amount of miles. So I was I actually averaged 29.6 miles a day, six days a week. Um, you always round up, Paul. 30. 30. 30. Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. Just <laughs> hey, case, that's not me, mate. That's just maths. in case there's any spotters out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mate, people in the comments like that, it was 0.4 of a mile shorter. He's a liar. <laughs> He's a liar. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't add up to 5,000. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I'd say the first few weeks were tough, but to make it tougher, uh, the injuries that I did have or the problems that I did face was fair. As I approached Gret- um, Scotland, the first town you come to is Gretna. Yeah. And just as I got into Gretna, I was having a shower um, one evening and I slipped in the shower and cracked two ribs. So I've got these two ribs, two cracked ribs, and I couldn't sleep throughout the night. I was barely breathing. And my mate was like, mate, just let's have a couple of weeks off. Um, cause I had a friend with me. So I have a couple of weeks off and then we'll restart. And I was like, mate, I am not stopping. Like, I've got yeah. people to meet. I've got things to do. Um, so I kept, I cracked on running. Excuse the pun. Excuse the pun. <laughs> I cracked on running and my ribs kept on cracking. And yeah. uh, but that was painful for about two or three weeks. It was, it was tough. I'm not gonna lie. And because when, as you probably know, or most people listening knows, if you've got an injury somewhere. Um, you start to compensate, yeah. which causes injuries other places. Massive, so mate. I started getting because I was leaning to my right-hand side a bit where my cracked ribs were, started getting problems in my hips. Yeah. And then my knees started hurting and then I started getting cramps in certain bits of my, my legs. Um, but I was just I was just so determined to just keep on going. I was like, look, dude, I have a little motto that I use. And it's pain, is te- pain is temporary and pride is forever. Yeah. And I thought no matter what the pain is, whether it be physical, emotional, psychological pain, if you just keep pushing on through it, it, eventually it passes and you, you don't know about it anymore um, but the pride you can take from keep on going is the best thing yeah, ever yeah no mate amazing um, so on the back of the row how much did you raise in the end? Um, as a charity for our first year of raising money we raised just over £400,000 which is fantastic um, yeah so 
it, I mean, the run itself, I don't really know how much money we raised because I had a Just Giving page um, personally, which I think was about 65000 yeah. in there. Um, but then I was meeting lots of companies and organizations who were then donating money through as well. So Yeah, no, that's absolutely amazing. And what's what's next for Head Up um, Charity? Oh, it's the, a lot of hard work now. So we want to set up a retreat, which will be in Worcestershire. Yep. Our retreat, we're hoping to have it developed by the end of next year. So um, we've got lots of fundraising still to do. We're getting lots more fundraisers, lots of corporates to donate money. Um, we've got to come up with a financial plan which we're going to put in place of how much everything's going to cost, take it to the grants teams, um, start to get people on board as well. So we've got a lot to do this year, but it's, it's going to be very vital and exciting 12 months and then we can actually open up our doors and start helping people that we set this charity up for in the first place. Yeah, and that's not the only thing the charity offers. You were telling me you're doing loads of events before. Um, is it, So yes, that's right. Yeah, so because all the different things we're going to be teaching we want to start, uh, we've got lots of little mini retreats, little, little, lots of little mini events. Uh, the first one we're, we're doing is on the 9th, 19th of December in London, and it's a lay down and listen. So it's a bit of mute about, it's part of our, our music therapy, so how people feel better through music that we listen to. And we've actually got two classical um, musicians that are coming into London, into a, into a cathedral, and they're going to play um, some music for... Uh, some people who are laying down and just help them relax and and, and calm down and unwind. Yeah, and you've got a few, loads more of these coming up. Um, Paul, that's absolutely amazing, mate. I love talking to you, right? And normally I ask, you know, for a bit of advice you could give to a, like your younger self. That's normally how I like to finish. But I just want you to give a message to sort of any anyone who served in the British military, anyone who's still in, just a message to them if they're, they're thinking, oh, am I right? Or I don't need help. What would be your message to them to come and like exploit your charity and um, and use it for what it's been set up to to do. The, I think the the biggest thing I'd say is our charity, although it's got the name charity to it, we're very much uh, proactive uh, as well as reactive. So it doesn't matter what your mindset is. You could be in the best mindset or the worst mindset ever. Anyone can come and use it and uh, and and learn different ways how you can strengthen your mindset, strengthen your mental resilience. I become stronger mentally as well as just physically. Everyone looks at how we look physically and they, they feel strong because they've been to the gym or they've done a certain run or whatever it may be. But it's so important to strengthen our mind as well. And it's not weak. It doesn't mean that you you don't have to wait to be in a position where you need to strengthen your mental resilience. Um, just go out there and find different ways and how, how you can do that. The best time to do it is when you're in a good mindset. So we're trying to get people when they're in a good mindset, as well as everyone in between up to people who really need it. Um, yeah, do it with your friends. There's so many different things you can do. Go to our website, uh, head-up.org.uk. There's multiple different lessons on there and start to start to learn all these different stuff. Like massive, really massive message. <laughs> really good message there, mate. And, um, you know, I'm really like, obviously being in the military, I want to share that because like we've spoken about geezers, mate, like that could maybe use a bit of a use a bit of a hand but they're too proud to ask for it so it's something i'm definitely going to get behind mate and i'm really excited nice. um guys that is the end of the episode today if you enjoyed it please could you like follow subscribe all that good stuff because it helps grow the pod um and i'd really appreciate it and finally thank you for listening you enjoy that mate yeah really yes, good. Mate, Cheers, big, mate big thank you for coming on mate